Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. And very often God does lead us in that way. We don't really get the passion and the vision for something until we've been exposed to it. And that's why short-term missions are so important. My first few um, weeks in Beirut included a meeting with uh, a young man who'd been converted uh, through Christian radio. He used to get up at 3 o'clock every morning in Afghanistan and listen to HCJB's transmissions uh, in Farsi or Dari, I think it was, and he became a believer. And that, in, in those first days in the 70s in Lebanon, really brought home to me the power of mass media. I'm going to be sharing information about the Middle East and about the incredible opportunity of satellite television in that region, but I wanted to say that as a sort of introduction to uh, uh, Eric, who will follow uh, with the presentation about the work of HCJB, um, because these are complementary ministries into very difficult areas. We're going to start, though, with a video that will just give you a quick overview of some things I will share with you in more detail as we go into the evening. So if we could run that DVD now. You might be surprised to know that in this area there are as many as 20 million Christians. And by the way, when I use the word Christian, I'm talking they were born Christian as opposed to Muslim or Jewish. And they will include people that are passionate about their faith in all denominations, and it will include nominal Christians. Um, half those Christians live in Egypt. That's the, mostly the members of the Coptic Orthodox Church that dates its uh, founding back to St. Mark in the first century. And we may look at the Orthodox Church as being somewhat stilted, not interested in mission, but I understand that it was uh, Coptic monks that first brought the gospel to at least some parts of Ireland and certainly to Central Europe. They gave us the monastic order. The first canon of scripture came out of Egypt. And the Coptic Church today is in a state of renewal with an amazing youth movement, uh, with three-month Bible schools that run for kids uh, every summer, Bible memorization and all kinds of inter-church competitions. And people are passionate about their faith in an area where it, you pay a price to be a Christian. We could spend the whole evening talking about this map, but sufficient to say um, the Christians that are on this map in Libya, for example, are mostly expatriate Christians. There are no card-carrying Libyan Christians, the same in Saudi Arabia. These would be expatriate Christians, although we do know that there are hundreds, if not tens of thousands of believers in Saudi who have not been able to change their identity card or come out as Christians. As I mentioned, most of the Christians in the region are Orthodox because of the high percentage of Coptic Orthodox Christians uh, Christians in that community. There's also a lot of Catholics, and again, many of these are very passionate, and God is doing a real work of renewal in the Catholic Church there. There are one and a half million expatriate Christians that are living in different parts of the region, about two million Anglicans, mostly in the Sudan area, and then a number of independent churches. Christians, as you'll be aware, unless you're living in uh, another planet, have suffered terribly in the Middle East. Um, in Iran, we've had all kinds of waves of persecution. Um, in fact, 40% of the leadership of the Assemblies of God were killed through extrajudicial killings 
in the 1990s. And there's a new wave of persecution, especially of those who are from a Muslim background, with new laws being tabled to lead to the official execution of apostates, those that leave Islam. Saudi Arabia, which is disgracefully the cornerstone of American foreign policy in the Middle East at this moment, uh, has no official place of worship for non-Muslims in the country. There is no official church building that one can go to on Friday, the day off, uh, although there are underground church meetings and embassies have special meetings for their staff and nationals. But uh, it's also still a country where you can be executed for apostasy. Every Friday after prayers in the central square in Riyadh, there are public beheadings. They include murderers, those caught in adultery, drug smugglers, and apostates, those that have left the faith. So it's an unbelievable scenario for the 21st century, but it is the reality of the situation. Sudan, uh, even today on the news, some of you may have heard that the, the three-year-old ceasefire between North and South is beginning to break down as if the problems in Darfur were not enough. Two million people have died in those conflicts in the last 20 years. And there's other countries like Algeria, Egypt, Turkey, where there is uh, intermittent persecution of Christians, and certainly it's extremely difficult for those that come to Christ from a Muslim background. Again, we could spend the whole week looking at this, but I have to move on. Missiologically, as we look at the Middle East and North Africa today, there are some important facts. One of these is the rapid population growth. The net increase in the population across this half of the 1040 window is one million people every month. So without using mass media, we are going to continue to go backwards in the task of proclaiming the gospel. Other forms outside of the use of mass media are not touching the lives of 12 million people every year. And so the bottom line is there are more people without using the mass media every year that, will, that have yet to hear the gospel in the Middle East. Another important factor is literacy. Um, for different reasons, uh, education has been very neglected in many parts of the Middle East, especially North Africa. And statistically, half of the Arab world, 300 million people today, could not read the front page of a newspaper. They could not read a page from the Bible. And it's, uh, even those that can read are increasingly dependent on electronic media, especially television, for their information and for their entertainment. And it's amazing that you can go across that region and you will not find a home without a TV set. 95% of the population have at least one TV. That's a very conservative estimate. I would say it was nearer to 99.9%. .9%. I've yet to see a home without a TV set. The problem historically for Christian Witness, I suppose, has been television, like all forms of media, print media, radio, uh, local radio at least, has been heavily controlled by the government. Television, because of its influence on hearts and minds across the region especially, has been controlled. It's not some kind of accident that outside each radio and television station in the Middle East there are sandbags and, and uh, gun emplacements and the military do control it because controlling the TV controls what people think. Now, that's begun to change, especially since the beginning of the 90s when these satellite dishes began springing up on rooftops. Why satellite TV? Because you're getting signals from satellites that are not controlled 
by any one Arab government. And you can get television signals from Europe, from any of the Arab countries, uncensored. And it has become today the primary source of uncensored information and entertainment. In fact, the more closed the countries like Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and Algeria, Morocco, the more dishes there are. Uh, in fact, in Saudi Arabia, they had a, a ban on satellite dishes up until 2002 with a, something like a $60,000 fine for anyone with dishes. By the time they'd taken away that ban, 75% of homes in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia had already got a satellite dish. So it was an, a law that had never been enforced or was not enforceable. In Iran, it's still illegal to own a satellite dish, but at least 30 to 40 million people, more than half the population, have got a satellite dish. And the biggest importer of satellite dishes and receivers is one of the mullahs in the government. So it's, a, a, it's full of contradictions, the area. But there's no doubt that satellite television is a phenomena. And today, half of the population have got satellite television at home. That's near 240 million people are able to watch uncensored satellite television. And that was the reason why Sat7 began um, in 1996 with a pathetic two-hour-a-day broadcast, but we'll come back to that. We are broadcasting in three major languages. The first is Arabic, um, and there are 300 million, as I mentioned, people that know Arabic in these different 21 different countries of the region. The second language block is Farsi, and Farsi or Dari or derivatives of Farsi are understood by about 100 million people from mostly Iran and parts of Afghanistan. And then another large language block is uh, Turkish language, and we're able to carry four hours a day of Turkish programming made by a sister agency in Istanbul called Turk7. And David Middleton, who's the director for that ministry, is with us tonight. You'll be able to meet him afterwards, and he can tell you more about that outreach to Turkey. We began with uh, two hours a week. Now, that sounds rather pathetic for a broadcaster uh, to be on the air for two hours a week, but it was a good beginning. We used to do it in the middle of the day on Friday, which was the day off for most of the Arab world. And, uh, well, after a year, we managed to get that to two and a half hours a week. And after another year, we managed to get it to five hours a week. And it was a very slow ramp up, partly because we, when we began, people were afraid to go in front of a camera. We had no equipment. There were no programs on the shelf um, and basically a lack of experience. Um, so it took a long time, but God has brought together an amazing team today that has enabled us to broadcast three separate channels, one uh, just in Arabic for Arab families, another just for children that's in Arabic. Um, there are 100 million Arabic children under the age of 16, and they are the group that are most open to change. They're the hope for the future of the Arab world. And then the third channel broadcasts in a mix of Farsi and Turkish. We have studios in Cairo. Um, they've only been burnt down once so far. And uh, we've had added security since the first fire, so we thank God that it's only been one. In Beirut, we have a studio that's also been through a number of civil disturbances, nearly gotten caught up in two bombings, and is just a 20-minute drive from Husbollah headquarters so again, it's a vulnerable situation, but we thank God that we've had no more than just one break-in and theft in the last five years. 
We also have been doing some work in Tehran, despite the situation there for Christians. It doesn't always go easily. We have had um, a number of programs confiscated from the dubbing house that we were using, and the dubbing house itself was shut down for a few months and all its equipment confiscated as a result of them doing work for a Christian channel. In Cyprus, we have an international headquarters and a, an uplink site, a master control room for broadcasting. In Beirut, we have a studio, as we mentioned, in Cairo, and we're hoping to open a bureau in Jordan in the near future. Sesame's programming is not just talking head half-hour blocks one after another, sponsored by U.S. ministries, as is much of global Christian television today. It's programming blocks designed for specific audiences. So every day we have two or three one-hour blocks for children, uh, another one-hour block for youth that comes several times a day, another one-hour block for women. We also have news and current affairs discussion programs. We have original drama. Drama, of course, is a great medium for television, um, but it's expensive to produce. And we have uh, church services, Christian teaching programs, Uh, and films, uh, Western-made, high-quality films about the prophets of the Bible, biblical stories that we're able to dub uh, or subtitle into Arabic. And we also, with the help of uh, mostly uh, humanitarian agencies like World Vision or or Tear Fund, are able to include programs about disability, micro-enterprise development, health, safety, hygiene, environmental issues. The responses since the first day have changed quite a bit. It used to be just mail and telephone calls. Now it includes a lot of electronic mail, um, Skype, uh, text messaging from phones is a huge part of our incoming responses this year. And we're looking at all kinds of new uh, social networking sites and how we can exploit those in terms of follow-up. Today, less than 12% of the Arab world have got access to the Internet, and most of those connections are very low-grade, but still, we've seen a massive growth in visits to the Arabic website with about 32 million page hits last year from 40,000 different visitors every month. We get a very good response from women and children, and I think this is where television complements radio. Radio is really good at reaching especially young men who listen to radio, which is a more personal, interactive medium in in that sense. But for reaching women and children, television is unbeatable. I mean, we all know television and kids go together. And so it's been great to see the response from them. And to see Muslim parents encouraging their children to write in and enter a competition on the show. I don't know why Muslim children are encouraged by their parents to watch, but I do know that they trust us. I was in a taxi in Alexandria, Egypt once and was talking to the taxi driver and it turned out he, he found out that I worked with Sat7. He said, oh, this is the only channel I can trust my kids with and he's a Muslim. So that's the kind of relationship we've been able to build with the Muslim community. We do have telephone counselling services in different countries that are run mostly by partners such as Life Agape or Campus Crusade or local churches of different kinds. And it's been amazing to see some of these telephone counselling centres start up in very difficult environments, such as Algeria. Three years ago, we started advertising a telephone number, an Algerian number, that people could call to get Christian information and counselling. And we thought that the telephone number would be taken down by the government. It is a public government line. Um, Within a few hours or days or possibly a week, 
But after three years, it has not been interfered with at all. And uh, it's, it's really amazing to see the courageous brothers and sisters there taking on these opportunities to share their faith with Algerians. I'd like to take a lot more time to share with you responses, but time is short. I will share one complaint we had from a woman in Egypt. She wrote, uh, since you started the Sat7 Kids channel, my six-year-old will not allow anyone in our family to change the channel. That's a great complaint to have, and we get a lot of those. We do get a lot of testimonials of people who've changed their religion, who've become Christians, who've... um, gone through amazing things, sometimes watching for five, six, seven years before they even write to us. Here's a letter from Palestine, a Palestinian. I'm a Muslim and a regular viewer of your channel, which has become my favorite. I'd like to tell you that Sat7 is the first on my list of channels. Oftentimes I feel I'm more Christian than my fellow Christians, but I cannot reveal this to others for fear of being killed, rejected, or isolated. Is it possible for me to be a Christian and a Muslim at the same time? Please help me. And this is the kind of dilemma that many people get into as they watch and are attracted to the beauty of Christ. Sat7 is a partnership with a lot of different agencies. Um, Some of these you won't know. They're local churches, many European mission societies. Um, You will recognize the Baptist um, Missionary Society or the Church Missionary Society or World Vision, Life Agape, Campus Crusade. Um, but we do work with 32 different partners in this project. And we have a number of distinctives, the first being that we are an inter-agency, inter-denominational partnership. The second being that 80% of all our programming is made indigenously by local people. Um, That's very important to us, that we work, uh, that we produce programs that are made by people for the people in... uh, that live around them. It's more relevant, more sensitive culturally and politically. We don't sell airtime, which is the rather normal model for Christian broadcasting and results in programming coming on that's not really the best for specific audiences. We do carry a wide range of programs for different audiences. Um, We do try to be as politically and culturally sensitive as we can in our program. We never attack Islam. We never have comparative studies between Jesus and Muhammad. We just present the Christian faith in a positive way. And that seems to have a much more positive um, effect in terms of building audiences among the Muslim community. And Sat7 maintains production centers in a number of different places. The majority of our board of directors are Middle Easterners to really help us maintain a sensitivity to local issues in the region. Our budgets have grown considerably over the years since we started in 96. We've had a few down years. 2006 was a bad year. 2002, right after 9-11, was a difficult year. And six and a half million pounds, or $13 million, is a lot of money for a project. Um, But I like to look at it like this. We've got independent market research that shows that at least eight million people would watch our programming once a week, twice a week, every day, but at least once a week. So for less than a pound a year, we can provide 365 days of Christian broadcasts to a known viewer. For me, that's a very cost-effective way of doing ministry. But more importantly than cost-effectiveness is the fact that these programs are going into homes where no other Christian witness might be possible. 
Yes, we have Christian radio, and we're going to hear more about that. It's very important, but as I said, doesn't really impact the women and the children in the same way. And so, for me, it's not really about the economy. It's about the reach into places where no Christian has set foot before. I wish I had more time to share with you something about the region. It's in a state of unprecedented instability. Uh, You start off in Afghanistan. You've got a very difficult situation that we're all familiar with there. Really, it needs a generation of sustained effort to bring Afghanistan from tribalism into a one country and bring some kind of stability. It's not going to be fixed in five years or ten years. It needs huge effort. Iran is saber-rattling, threatening to cut off oil supplies through the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, Iraq... Who knows how that story will end? Will the country split into pieces? Certainly the 1.2 million Christians of Iraq have had to flee, most of them, and those that have stayed are mostly internally displaced peoples. Syria and Lebanon, very unstable situation there. Palestine, divided between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. A weak government in Israel. How can there be any, anybody with enough authority to bring about the compromises needed for a peace plan? Saudi Arabia, cornerstone of American foreign policy, very unstable situation. The royal family of 4,000 could easily be overthrown by the fundamentalists that they've created through their own 25 years of madrasas or Islamic teaching, teaching in schools. Just to say that Christian witness has been stifled in many of these areas. And so satellite television, again, and radio are playing a vital part in providing perhaps the only way that we can witness in some of these areas. Remember, too, that the Middle East is... It has the lowest percentage of Christians, even nominal Christians, of any part of the world. And yet we're not putting the resources into that area. We've talked for at least 20 years about the 1040 window, about the need to redeploy our mission resources into that area. But actually... According to David Barrett's latest or 2005 statistics, less than 0.1% of all giving to Christian mission work worldwide went into that whole area of Middle East and North Africa. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, there are not a lot of opportunities. But many people are doing a great work. The Bible Societies, Campus Crusade, the radio ministries... There are opportunities to do more, and it is a very important part of the world. It's actually more obvious, I think, to the Western world today that if we don't deal with some of these problems in the Middle East, they're going to come back to us wherever we live in the world. There is uh, some literature that's available at the exhibition afterwards. I think you'll be hearing more about that, and I'll be at the exhibition stand. But I did want to close with a few... I can just see the clock. I can steal two more minutes... Some verses, and I won't read them all, but Luke 9, 3, Jesus sent out his disciples, um, telling them to take nothing for their journey, and so on. I won't dwell on that, but later on in Matthew 28, he tells them to go again, go forth therefore and make all nations my disciples, baptize men everywhere in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commended to you. Do you realize the implications of that? At that point in time, the disciples had no money, no treasurer. They had a treasurer, but he just committed suicide after embezzling the funds. They had no transport other than a landlocked 
boat that was on a lake that couldn't go anywhere. They had no organization. They didn't even have the name for an organization at that point. They were illegal. They were outlaws. They had no buildings, no equipment, no churches, no support or mailing lists, no mail or telephones, no fax, text messaging, email, telex, computers, photocopiers. They had no strategy, no business plans, no job descriptions, no maps of the world, no airline shuttles, no GPSs, no mission schools, no maps of unevangelized peoples, no follow-up programs or church growth models, no alpha courses, no Bibles, no handbooks on evangelism, no four spiritual laws, no language training schools, and some of them were even illiterate. And there was very little unity amongst the group, a lot of jealousy, petty squabbles, personality clashes, disagreements on what to do next, to stay here, to go there. There was no mass media, there was no radio, no TV, no printing presses, no internet, no tape recorders, no DVDs, no cameras, no transmitters, no uplinks, no satellites, no social networking sites. There were no medical or pension plans, no banks for transferring money, no passports, no diplomatic missions, no need for work permits, of course, but there were no employment laws. There were no unions to be members of, no credit cards that you could use to reserve hire cars, which, of course, did not exist, or make online discount airline reservations for airlines that didn't exist. This gives us a lot of food for thought. These people went out empty-handed in a simple way led by God. In today's world, can we really live a Christian life in this complicated, complex, overloaded world of information, things competing for our time and attention, and our dependency on electronic gadgets and machines and the internet to cope with life. Is this important? Are there dangers here for us? And how can we protect ourselves from those dangers? Go to a monastery? I don't think so. Most of the monasteries I've been to have got more gadgetry than uh, the most of us put together. Today we have so much... And if we are to be called good servants, good stewards of all he's given to us, we need to really use what he's provided for us. For Paul, the opportunity seems to have been Pax Roman, with citizenship rights, with trade routes, with roads to spread the gospel. For us, it's a number of material resources and the ability to travel and to broadcast. And I often refer to Sat7 as an opportunity that the Apostle Paul would have died for, Instead of being shipwrecked and traveling across the Mediterranean, he could sit in Jerusalem and broadcast to the whole Roman Empire. Wow, he would have grabbed that opportunity. So how do we respond in this situation? Will we go? Maybe we have special skills in broadcasting, in internet, um, in human resources. There are skills that are needed in this modern missionary era. Or will we pray? We heard about the importance of praying for laborers to go into the harvest field this morning. Will you pray because we are in a spiritual warfare, especially in that area of the 1040 window? Or will you support? This is a great opportunity, but it comes with great costs financially, money that has to be found every year. May God continue and to give us wisdom about how we steward all that he's given to us, our lives, our skills and our time, our spiritual and our material resources. Thank you. 
We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.